special Lenten message from Archbishop Jerome Lestecki, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Hello, Archbishop Lestecki here. The prophetic voice of John the Baptist reminds us that time is passing. Our days are numbered. We are closer to our end than the beginning. Are we prepared? Are we ready for what God has in store for us? Lent reminds us to put our lives in order. Don't waste another minute. See you at Mass. At Catholic Financial Life, our members are offered scholarship benefits from grade school through college. To learn more about eligibility for these or many other value-added benefits we offer, call Matt Tomlinson at 847-548-6288. That's 847-548-6288. Good afternoon, everyone. Once again, this is Monsignor Robert Dempsey, pastor of St. Patrick's Parish in Lake Forest, Illinois. Welcome you all to what is today Pastor's Roundtable, which is a chance for priests and lay people to discuss a particular topic of interest. In addition to being pastor of a parish, one of my other little jobs is I sometimes teach at the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein's Liturgical Institute, a kind of hidden gem which is a real asset and blessing for the church in the United States. And so today I'm very happy to have with me two people from the Institute, Jesse Weiler, who is Director of Communications for the Institute and has been associated with it for a number of years now, and Father Don Ansetter from the Archdiocese of St. Louis, who is a doctoral student. Father Don uh, did his licentiate at the Pontifical Athenaeum of San Anselmo in Rome and is now studying at our Liturgical Institute in Mundelein. So I'd like to begin by talking to Jesse a little bit because of his long association with the Institute. How did it get started? How did it come about? Why, why here in the middle of the Midwest do we have a liturgical institute? Well, it was actually uh, a, a pet project of Cardinal George, and it uh, was founded in 2000, and he really wanted to have a place in America that was the, the central location of liturgical education that would then, uh, the institute then would educate people like Father Don, who would then go on to seminaries and then teach seminarians. And so it was a, it was a pet project in, in 2000 from Cardinal George. And uh, so we've been going strong for almost 20 years. And it, it's really a, a great institute to have a focused and balanced approach to the liturgy, which hadn't really existed before that. Well, that's great. Uh, Father Don, of course, is a priest, and uh, having taught there, I have taught a number of priests, but they're not all priests who study there, are they? No. uh, You can be a priest, you can be religious, you can be lay. Um, We have a, a number of lay students that come in the summertime, actually, because our summer program is a six-week program and all the classes are are finished before noon in fact that's when you usually teach is that correct that's correct and uh, a number of lay students come because they work at parishes and the summer times are are not so busy at parishes so they can come for a six-week segment um, but the the lay population uh, tends to go towards our masters of arts and liturgy uh, degree which then helps them 
be qualified to work at parishes or maybe work at a diocese or office for, wor- office for worship for a diocese like that? Well, that's great. Does uh, the Liturgical Institute, uh, my understanding is that it has its own particular approach. Uh, I think they call it a rights-based Correct. approach. Yep. What's that like? <laughs> it's great, actually. <laughs> um, what, what's great about the rights-based approach is that it's kind of like a, non, a no-nonsense type of approach where there's no politi- uh, in polarizing comments or, or perspectives on the liturgy and, and, and you know, liturgy can be very polarizing in and of itself. So people come come to it with a different uh, subjective viewpoint. They may think we should be doing one thing in liturgy, um, and then a completely different type of population may com- feel the complete opposite. And what's great about the Liturgical Institute is we first start with the church documents. So we start what with what the church says, and then we take educated approach from those who interpret those documents to to the best degree and to a balanced degree as well. So um, it's really unique. And the other thing that is unique to the Liturgical Institute is not just the rights-based approach, but everything at the Liturgical Institute is based in prayer and study as a mutual enrichment of sorts. So every morning, our students get together and we chant morning prayer, and then we have mass, and then the students go for the day of studying, and then we come back together again at the end of the day and chant evening prayer. So our community prayer, our communal prayer, enhances our study, and then our study then enhances our prayer. And it's this beautiful cycle of mutual enrichment. And and no other institution that we know of really does anything quite like that. It is re- it is very good, and uh, I participate myself many times in the prayer when I'm uh, teaching there. Father Don, how have you found that experience compared to uh, your past uh, experiences in studying liturgy? Well, it has been uh, wonderful, it's absolutely wonderful. I, I have a real passion for this, just the liturgy celebrated well, um, as the Church wants, and so I've found a wonderful fit at the Liturgical Institute, and so... Um, you know, to to gather every day, and right now, are, uh, there's not a lot of priests in the program right at the moment. So over the course of the year, uh, myself and Father Henry and a couple other priests alternate as far as who's the celebrant, and it's, it's just very refreshing, I would say, to be able to celebrate the liturgy, to to chant the office, to celebrate mass um, in a way that is uh, very simple, but very dignified, uh, very elegant, and and it's 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 really what the church is asking. Mm-hmm. Um, of what she wants for the liturgy. And so to be able to do that day in and day out has been um, a real blessing for me. And, uh, yeah, I, I just look forward to it every morning. Well, that's good, because when they take my course on liturgical law and documentation, they get down to what is really the kind of uh, nuts and bolts of things, the, the required stuff, the, uh, the church's expectations uh, is laid out in uh, black and white. But uh, to see that, as I tell them, this is a skeleton. You have to take this and, and then live it and make it your own. It's uh, just the point of departure. But uh, for me, what I, meant, I always mentioned to them in the beginning, rights-based means what the code says, that liturgy is essentially what the church does. Liturgy is what the church does. So it is the rights of the church celebrated by those deputed by the church according to the liturgical books approved by the church. And that's the, the point of departure, especially with the Liturgical Institute. And my, my experience as a parish priest has been that uh, when you basically do what's there, people notice it and they're not unhappy about that. 
Has that been your experience as a parish priest? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. When people might, I always, I, I, I my mom has a great line. She, uh, she's a daily communicant. Um, her prayers are keeping me going every day. But uh, she says she'll she'll go some mass someplace, and and a priest will celebrate mass, and she can her 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 barometer. She'll say he really celebrates a a reverent mass, and it's <laughs> always and I always take that as a that's one of the highest compliments I think a priest can get because um, it means that and they, and and she'll talk about different priests, and and I know the different priests, and I know their style of celebration might be very different, but there's something about it. It's it's a reverent celebration, um, a rev, a reverent mass, and um, and I think that gets to the point that it's you do what the church asks and that can look a lot of different ways the church allows us to do a lot to to do things in in a variety of different ways but that if it's done well if it's done lovingly then people notice and and they really take note it is jesse you, you mentioned the number of lay people that are enrolled in the program and that's always impressed me because uh they're there uh every one of them because they want to be they haven't been sent there by their superiors or which is sometimes the case they're they're there uh, many of them are training for a diocesan position, but not necessarily. Some of them are teachers. Some just want to be involved as liturgic, liturgy coordinators in their parishes. Uh, what kinds of jobs, especially do the lay alumni and alumnae of the Institute in, are involved in? That's a very good question. In fact, uh, we just did kind of a uh, survey of all of our graduates, uh, lay and, and priest and religious, and we discovered that 100% of our graduates actually are working in the relevant field. And about 20% of the dioceses in America have Liturgical Institute students working somewhere in the worship office or some, some aspect of it, whether it's a diocesan worship office or uh, for a religious order or things like that. In fact, we have religious orders that will send some of their um, people to the Institute to help with liturgies within the community. Um, so I want to make sure that we talk about that too. But then for the, for the lay people, um, it's a, it's a wide spectrum. We have a, we have a young man who, who is doing the, the five year summer program right now, who's an architect and, uh, his, his job sent him down to the liturgical Institute and is helping him because they want to be able to understand how to better serve Catholic churches who want to do a renovation or remodeling. And so it's a benefit to them to have him go and learn about this sacramental liturgical architecture, um, a lot of the stuff that Dennis McNamara will be talking about. Uh, we also have quite a few people who are attending the Liturgical Institute with a primary focus of music. So there are a number of people who are in charge of music for parishes or Again, diocesan entities or cathedrals or things like that. And then uh, we, we have had a number of students who are just teachers. You know, mm -hmm. they, they're teachers or they wanted to add an extra, you know, different specialization to what they do. And then, of course, a number of lay people who are, um, who are also heads of uh, diocesan worship offices. Uh, Christopher Carsons is doing that. Um, one of our other graduates, Jeremy Priest, is working for um, the... Uh, department or another department is working for family life uh, in a diocese uh, down in the uh, southwest so it's really a wide spectrum of why people approach the Institute and one of my initiatives when I first started working was that I understand that not, ev not everybody's gonna want a liturgy degree imagine that um, but I discovered so much joy in what I was learning through the faculty and through the staff at the Liturgical Institute that 
I wanted to make sure that more people got access to this information. So whether you get a degree from the LI or not, you should be able to have access to this information. And so those are some of the initiatives, some of the video projects that we've done, the Young Adult Liturgy Conference that we'll be having, podcasts, things like that. And I can tell you that we have sparked the interest of a number of young adults who are looking for this liturgical renewal. Well, that's great, a liturgical renewal, which is kind of up your alley, isn't it? <laughs> uh, your own doctoral work is going to be on the subject of active participation, a topic which uh, actually, as I like to point out to my students, although many of them know it already, the term participatio actuosa was first used by St. Pius X in his letter on liturgical music, Tralis Felicitudini, uh, and it became early on one of the hallmarks of the liturgical renewal. But uh, it has also led to a lot of discussion, sometimes heated discussion, <laughs> as to uh, what the term actually means and what it looks like uh, in uh, everyday life, everyday participation in liturgy. So maybe you'd like to share with our listeners some of the things you'll be exploring in your doctoral work. Oh, sure. Hope not to bore anybody <laughs> with this. But no, I think the heart of it is this idea of active participation that, like you said, has been... Uh, guiding this liturgical renewal for almost a century now, or over a century now. And the whole idea is that when we go to Mass, when we when we are in the pews, we are engaged, or we ought to be engaged, with what's happening at the altar, where Jesus Christ is making himself present, where the his sacrifice on the cross is being is represented. Um, and he wants us to be a part of that. He wants us to participate in what he is doing. And so this idea of participation in the liturgy, really, it starts with what's going on in our own hearts. Um, when we bring our ourselves, when we lay ourselves on the altar, when, when the priest places bread and wine on the altar, we're meant to be placing our lives, our joys, sufferings, prayers, works, everything with it, with that bread and wine on the altar so that it can be transformed by the grace of God, by, by the grace of Jesus Christ, um, and given back to us. And, and, and everything that we give, uh, to God is, uh, is transformed with, with those gifts into Jesus Christ. When, so when we say, uh, we are the body of Christ, that's not just a throwaway line, but no, truly Christ has, incorporated us into himself and he continues to do so through baptism through the sacraments and every time we receive then the eucharist um, and so everything we do at mass then responding to the prayers listening to the readings singing the the antiphons and the hymns everything that we do during mass is meant to draw us into that reality um, and help us to to transform our hearts and to to conform our hearts to what jesus is doing and what he wants to wants us to be and so uh, we become ever more like him uh, through the action of the liturgy now, you mentioned uh, participating in the prayers of the Mass and the music of the Mass. Uh, as you probably know, Cardinal Robert Sara, the Prefect of the Congregation of Divine Worship, Discipline, and Sacraments, has also talked about the role of silence. Can silence be a form of active participation, even though you're not saying or doing anything, apparently? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important that uh, we always begin sort of with that interior understanding of this participation, that it's it's offering our hearts to Jesus. And so um, absolutely, you can I, I can I can sit there being entirely engaged when I listen to the readings um, or, or to the homily when uh, and, it, and it's, it's the high point of that of that participation, of course, is the Eucharistic prayer. When the priest is offering uh, those prayer, the words of Jesus, that we unite ourselves with Him in in silence. 
We're going to take a brief break and we'll be back after a few minutes. Nancy Martin. I invite you to join me for a free online course entitled to Consecration to Jesus Through Mary using the St. Louis de Montfort Charism and sponsored by Holy Apostles Seminary and College. You will learn about the misconceptions of true devotion to Our Lady and how she will lead you straight to her son Jesus in a short and easy way. We have rolling start dates throughout the year. For more information, email me at nmartin11 at sbcglobal.net. That's nmartin11 at sbcglobal.net. Enter into the spirituality of Pope St. John Paul II and Blessed Mother Teresa, who also consecrated themselves to Mary, by following the same method. God bless you. Hello, I'm Bill Wennington from the Church of St. Mary's and the Chicago Bulls. I, I believe Catholic Radio is important for all of us out there listening to help us through days when maybe our faith is being challenged by many different obstacles that are put in our way. And it's a chance to reflect and just think and hear stories from other people that maybe are going through the exact same issues that we are going through and how they have struggled and how they are getting through their problems today. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. Hello again, we're back here with Pastor's Roundtable with uh, Monsignor Robert Dempsey, joined by Jesse Weiler of the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, and also Father Don Anstetter, a doctoral student at the Institute who's a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. And we're talking about the Church's worship. And that topic is important because it's the one place more than any other where priests and people come together. As a pastor, that's where I see most of my people at Sunday Mass and also uh, other special occasions, whether it's a baptism, wedding, funeral. These are the events in which we are most fully and most completely church. When we gather with our community under the leadership of our priests to offer the Holy Sacrifice. So we're talking about the liturgy, and we were just discussing in the last segment uh, the subject of active participation, which is going to be part of Father Don's doctoral dissertation, which he's just getting going now. Um, reminds me of uh, my parents' generation. Uh, they were educated by my dad, by Jesuits, and my mom by religious of the Sacred Heart. 
and uh, especially the religious of the Sacred Heart in that in those era in that era was very they're very much uh, promoting liturgy as the prayer of the people. And so uh, they would have dialogue masses. This is back in the 1940s, which is still a very radical idea. Uh, they would occasionally have a dialogue mass. And uh, she always said, you should take your missile to church so that you pray the mass with the priest. And that was the big emphasis, was praying the mass with the priest. Because up to that point, it was not unusual for people to, to, to engage in their own private devotions, whether it was a rosary or prayer book or something else, they were praying. But they were saying their own prayers. They weren't saying the same prayers that the priest was saying at the altar. So uh, early on in the liturgical renewal, one of the emphases was to have the people praying along with the priest and uniting themselves with the prayer that was being said at the altar. So that represents at least an initial stage of the process. Where do you see it going now? Oh my! Well, no, that was that's definitely the start. Is to is to just to be aware of what what's being prayed, and of course, you know, there's been a lot of changes since the 1940s, where the mass would have been all in Latin, so you needed that missile there to know what the priest was praying, unless you unless you were fluent in Latin, or but even then, the priest was often praying uh, silently or quietly, and so um, yeah. So now we have the liturgies usually celebrated in the vernacular language, so so we can hear uh, the prayers much more readily, but. Uh, it's interesting, though, because we, we have to be careful not to think that just because we can hear those prayers that all of a sudden we, we understand them, because these prayers are, are encapsulating the greatest mysteries of our faith, um, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the redemption of humanity and all of these profound things. And so just because we hear the words doesn't necessarily mean that we understand them. And so I've been studying the liturgy now for, for years, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, um, as I think as I think you you guys know as well that um and so uh to just continue as as we get past just listening to to the words but actually to pray with them um and that's where the great this great idea of lexio divina comes in where we can pray uh prayerful reading of scripture is usually how it's how it's taken and so to, to pray slowly and prayerfully through a um a, a passage from from scripture or the gospels um but really the prayers of the mass are so rich that I like to do Lexio sometimes just with the with the prayers of the Mass. Every Sunday there's a different opening prayer, a collect, different, you know, we can pray with the, I did a, a whole retreat one time just praying through the the Eucharistic prayer, the first Eucharistic prayer, and it's just such such rich theology in there and, and uh, really explaining our relationship to Jesus Christ. Um, it's been wonderful. So I think there's a lot of room for all of us to grow in that um, familiarity with with the, the Mass itself and to pray those prayers and to, uh, to just grow in that. Well, that's a good point because unlike the two young men I'm with here this afternoon, I was old enough to be alive during the transition from the uh, what we now call the extraordinary form to the ordinary form. And there was a, a part of the motivation for introducing the vernacular was so that people could participate without having it mediated through a book that they had to read along with. And I think uh, at the time, many priests somewhat naively thought that all that we have to do is translate it into English, the language they understand, and they'll immediately understand everything and their participation will become much more active and engaged. And I think pastorally what we've seen over the last half century is it doesn't happen automatically. And I think uh, perhaps one of the areas where we need more is uh, proper liturgical catechesis, mm -hmm. that we start to begin, even at the grade school level, 
teaching people about what is going on at the mass. And uh, sounds like you're talking about mystagogy. Is yeah, that, well, that what you would indeed, say? <laughs> yes, because we're talking at least if we're talking about religious ed, we're talking about children who've already been initiated, at least received baptism, and in many cases, first communion already, and some dioceses uh, even confirmation by the time they're nine or ten years of age. Uh, so it is really a mystagogic catechesis, helping them to appreciate the mysteries they're already celebrating and participating in, but to have deeper insight. Um, do you think uh, anything the Liturgical Institute does helps to train people who can do that? No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm very excited about that idea of liturgical catechesis because I think it's the new frontier of the Catholic Church. We have been focusing a lot in the last decade on new evangelization and discipleship, which are really amazing and very much needed. Um, but one of the issues, ever since I started learning more about liturgy from the Liturgical Institute, one of the issues I kind of take with the uh, current discipleship approach is that we disciple, okay, so I meet you at church, I want to engage with you, I want let's, let's have a Bible study, let's have meals together, let me intentionally disciple you and bring you closer to Christ. On board, I get it, I love it, it's amazing. But when we see these modern discipleship programs, some of these college missionary discipleship programs and high school missionary programs, I feel like they come just shy of the liturgy, <laughs> and there's not a lot of liturgy in that discipleship process. So I feel like, you know, you're running the ball, and you get to the, the five-yard line, and then you decide to take a knee, and then you don't decide to go in the end zone. And so litur liturgical catechesis is going to then complete that discipleship process. So it's not worth discipling or intentionally discipling somebody and bringing them closer to Christ if the goal ultimately is not the liturgy. Because I can learn how to do Bible study. I can learn how to hang out with my friends and family in a very quote-unquote Catholic way. Uh, but unless the liturgy is the focus of that and the primary goal of that discipleship, then in my opinion, it's, it's not really worth it. So I, I, I think liturgical catechesis, and one of our graduates actually right now, uh, James, Dr. James Pauley, who teaches at Steubenville, uh, Francis, Franciscan University in Steubenville, just wrote an amazing book about liturgical catechesis. And, uh, you know, he talks a lot about if you're going to be teaching confirmandis about mm -hmm. what they're going to go through, uh, it's it's best maybe not to start with the gifts of the Holy Spirit or <laughs> you know who your saint is or whatever, but maybe go through the actual rite of confirmation. I, I know when I was confirmed, nobody ever told me what was going on. And so if you're going to go through the rite, say, okay, well, first of all, a bishop's hands, a priest's hands, they mean something different than other hands because they're blessed in a way that other hands are not blessed. So when a priest or a bishop touches you on the forehead or does a blessing and, and physically touches you, that means something different. Well, nobody ever took me aside and said, hey, this is what's going to happen when you're confirmed. It just felt like a Catholic graduation ceremony. So I, I think liturgical catechesis is the next frontier of, of Catholic new evangelization, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, that's very good because I notice a number of the students I've had, uh, there are people who have been uh, 
teachers, religion teachers, and they're really learning, studying more about the liturgy in order to be better teachers. And I think that is uh, so important. You mentioned confirmation, which is uh, a particular issue with me because so much <laughs> having sat through many of them, so many of them as a pastor, I, I wish there was more emphasis on the what the sacrament is doing for the person, that the Holy Spirit is coming to them. The Holy Spirit is strengthening uh, his presence in their lives. Uh, we have an almost kind of Lutheran theology that this is my chance to reaffirm my faith and it's my chance to do this, and my, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And mm-hmm. It's a recommitment of yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And sacraments are first and foremost Christ acting in us. That's what the doctrine of Oxopere Operato means, that it is Christ who is acting us through his Holy Spirit. And I think to have that, that sense, because as the council said, you know, the most oft-quoted phrase from Sacrosanctum Regilium is that the liturgy is the source and summit of the church's activity. And we're very good about talking about how it's a source of our activity. The liturgy motivates us spiritually, gives us spiritual power, sends us out into the world, etc. But that it all leads back to the worship of God. And that ultimately, we, it is a foretaste of what we will be doing in heaven, as described in the book of Revelation. Um, Dennis McNamara loves to quote, you know, Sacrosanctum Catilium 7, you know, about the, this is an anticipation of the heavenly mm-hmm. liturgy. Uh, Cardinal George used to say, you know, you better like worshiping God on earth because that's what you're <laughs> going to be doing for all eternity in heaven. We hope so, at least. <laughs> yeah. Right, rather right. than the other thing. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, you know, and Scott Hahn, one of the things that brought him uh, to the Catholic faith was the realization that what we read in the book of Revelation, we're already anticipating and participating in here below whenever we we attend Mass Mm -hmm. and are engaged in the Mass. So uh, that is important. So your doctoral dissertation had something else, something about the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating. That's right. So, you know, you you just don't come in there with your legs crossed, you know, a bottle (laughs) of water and kind of just share your feelings. Uh, Is that part of the Ars Celebrandi? No, it it could be yours. I don't know. I've never (laughs) seen you celebrate Mass Monsignor. I I assure you it's not. (laughs) I'm certain it isn't, but... uh, no, so so uh, this whole thing, this whole idea of uh, Ars Celebrandi, really, I or I first came across it in the writings of, of Pope Benedict in uh, Sacra, Sacramentum Caritatis, his uh, his exhortation um, after the Synod on the Eucharist, where he he speaks about the best way to to foster the participation of the faithful. Um, so what we were talking about earlier, this really connecting with the liturgy, being invested in the liturgy, the best way to foster the participation of the of the faithful is the proper celebration of the rite itself. And so this is where a lot of what we've been talking about today comes together, is that um, the the proper celebration, meaning according to the, the, the liturgy as the Church gives it to us, as uh, the Church wants us to celebrate it, um, according to the rubrics and, the, and, the, and all of the, the books. And so um, when we faithfully follow those rubrics, and not just, follow, not just, not just uh, a minimalist, oh, I did the bare minimum I have to do, but then um, follow all the, the instructions and, what the, and, and, and the spirit of what the Church is asking of us to give the best celebration of the liturgy possible, that that does something and that creates this beautiful celebration that then al- draws the faithful in and opens them up and allows them to participate um, as fully as Christ wants us to. As the people are only going to pray as much as they see the priest praying at Mass. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back in a few minutes.
My name is Nancy Martin. I invite you to join me for a free online course entitled to Consecration to Jesus Through Mary, using the St. Louis de Montfort Charism, and sponsored by Holy Apostles Seminary and College. You will learn about the misconceptions of true devotion to Our Lady, and how she will lead you straight to her son Jesus in a short and easy way. We have rolling start dates throughout the year. For more information, email me at nmartin11 at sbcglobal.net. That's nmartin11 at sbcglobal.net. Enter into the spirituality of Pope St. John Paul II and Blessed Mother Teresa, who also consecrated themselves to Mary, by following the same method. God bless you. Want an example of a false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MATT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. Welcome back. We are continuing our Pastors Roundtable. This is Monsignor Robert Dempsey, pastor of St. Patrick's Parish in Lake Forest, joined by Jesse Weiler from the Liturgical Institute of the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, and also Father Don Anstetter, a priest of St. Louis, who is doing doctoral studies and preparing his dissertation at the Liturgical Institute. In the last segment, we were continuing our talking, uh, talking about uh, the proper way to celebrate Mass, or what's called in Latin the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating. And uh, in my experience, uh, we've, we've experienced uh, both of the extremes, and I'm hoping that eventually we find some kind of balance. As you know, in the, ordinary, uh, the extraordinary form of the Mass, not only was every movement of the priest legislated, even uh, <coughs> how far he held his hands apart and the, the exact way he would join them together, etc., it was all, uh, the idea was, of course, that every single priest would celebrate Mass in identically the same way, which, in fact, didn't happen because some priests were pretty sloppy, others were very conscientious. Then by the time we discarded that, we went to the other extreme. When I was in the seminary, where each priest was encouraged to develop his own personal <laughs> presidential style. Oh. And perhaps you've been, to, uh, you've been to a Mass where you have a priest who's uh, developed his own unique style, shall mm. we say. So what we want to do is reach a point where there is a uniform way of celebrating Mass with reverence and with attention to the Church's uh, rubrical prescriptions, but without making it so regimented that it looks like a military parade. So how do you see, what's the best approach, would you say, Father John? Mm. This is the this is the sixty four thousand dollar question. I only, Steve, th- only that amount. Well, okay, probably more. <laughs> have to adjust for inflation, but uh, no, I was uh, I was teaching at the seminary in St. Louis at Kenrick Lennon Seminary before I came uh, to do doctoral studies here, and so uh, this question has been constantly on my mind for the last uh, several years of how do you teach 
seminarians to celebrate the liturgy and how do you teach them to celebrate it well because the church allows a legitimate diversity we don't have the the precise minutia of of every motion every gesture um, legislated to tell us exactly how to do it and and so we're given uh, we're told to you 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 extend your hands well how far you know and and so uh, the church doesn't say anymore or, or, or determine exactly how far so uh, I come up with a few different ways of of thinking about it and and i think the just the most basic principle for me that i find helpful is is this everything that i do as a as a uh, presider at mass is meant to be transparent it's meant to allow christ to shine through so i'm the mediator in this and the priest is the mediator meaning i bring christ and god his grace to the people and i bring the people's prayers to god and so um it's really not about me as don anstead or it's me about as 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 a priest standing there and so any everything i do uh uh, when it comes to the Oron's position, when I extend my hands, um, it can be wide, it can be narrow, but my, my question is always, am I drawing attention to Jesus Christ or to myself? Um, if I if I do the touchdown uh, Oron's position, <laughs> I'm holding up my hands like the uh, referees that have just uh, you know called a, a, a field goal. Uh, then then that's a little that can be a little distracting. Um, and if I do the the, the tiny little Oron's holding the brick, they say sometimes you know or I could mm-hmm. I could hold a brick between my hands. People are going to notice. I mean that it's draw it's it's distracting. And so I think you can apply that same just simple principle to any aspect of the liturgy. How fast do I pray these prayers? Do I sing? Do I do I chant this? Do I recite it? Uh, how fast do I go? Uh, you know, do I does it take me a week and a half to purify the vessels, or do you know, or to uh, you know, give the sign of peace? I mean, all of these things, if they're out of proportion, then then people notice and it becomes distracting. Um, I think one of the Again, going back to the reverent mass that my mom, when my mom says, Father so-and-so celebrates a reverent mass, there's not one characteristic you can point to to say, oh, it's because he does this or that. But rather, it's, a, it's an overall sense that you get when everything is in its proper place and in proper relationship to every other part of the mass, then you just get a sense this is the way it's supposed to be. And so it's, a, it's just a, an overall uh, sense that this, is, that this is right. And when any one of those pieces is out of whack all of a sudden you walk away talking about oh father preached for for 20 minutes today or whatever or you know he zipped through that eucharistic prayer whatever it is it's drawing attention now to one particular aspect um and and we don't want that we want the whole thing uh to fit together as it's meant to and once you get that and it's one of the most difficult things to do to get all of those pieces to fall into place um and be in proper relationship. But when it does, then someone can walk away and say, boy, that was a reverent mass, and I was able to pray uh, because of that. Well, those are good points, because it seems to me you've got uh, several things that have to be kept in mind. Number one is good liturgical education, so that when the, when the priest is studying the seminary, he understands what the various parts of the mass are there for, the relative, how they fit together, the relative importance of each part, uh, what needs more emphasis, what less. Secondly, his own prayerful, reverential participation in what he's doing, that he's not just there doing something for the people, but he himself is praying in its own part, part of his own personal prayer. Thirdly, I think, and this is where the Liturgical Institute comes in, good role models so that uh, 
the, the especially in the seminary, the liturgy should be celebrated with great dignity and with great precision and with great fidelity to the to the rite itself, so that they at least have several years of experience before they're sent off to some parish where Father Bozo does his own thing. At least they have a clear idea of uh, of what is the right way to do things. Absolutely. One of the things that is helpful, it doesn't solve every problem, but certainly the Ceremoniale Episcoporum, the ceremonial of bishops, has a little section on how hands are to be folded and how you make mm-hmm. a bow and genuflections and, and, uh, and all of those things that when I was an altar boy, they were trumped into us. We were trained mm-hmm. at the Queen of All Saints Parish in Chicago. We were trained according to O'Connell's Book of Ceremonies. <laughs> Sister Josepha probably should have been a Marine drill sergeant, but we had spent the first couple of weeks <laughs> practicing just genuflecting in unison. Mm-hmm. You line up four by four, and you have to <laughs> genuflect in unison, bow in unison, all mm-hmm. of this sort of stuff before you ever actually learned uh, when to bring up the cruets or something like that. Uh, it'd be hard to do that uh, today, although I think at some places, like probably St. John Cantius, they do. But, uh, <laughs> probably. In an ordinary parish, it's a little hard to do some of that. But um, to emphasize just the, uh, what you might call liturgical etiquette or manner, that you walk in a certain way, you carry yourself in a certain way. Um, if the orons, the extent of the hands isn't precisely prescribed, there are kind of outer and inner limits. Um, mm-hmm. I know priests who uh, I think want to be Carthusians who kind of make a cruciform, and that's fine in the Carthusian rite. But if you're following the Roman rite, it looks a little bit odd, and like the priest is calling attention to himself. Yeah, it's distracting. Uh, it is. Uh, so everything Jesse has done excellently at the Liturgical Institute is my recollection. <laughs> every time I <laughs> we try, yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, it's uh, it's a lot of pressure, you know, because we we pride ourselves in teaching you know all of these things and then you know then we're having mass and and chanted morning prayer every day and so we want to make sure that we're not just you know in the classroom studying about this but then we're living it as well and enacting it as 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 well too so um you know and and again i i i think we present also opportunities for other people to kind of come in to our world and see and one of those ways is our young adult liturgy conference that we're going to have here in Mundelein in June. So um, that is a, a conference specifically for young adults. We did one last year. We had 300 people from all 300. over. 300? Wow. 300 young adults from all over the country. We had, there were uh, these five guys from Vanderbilt University that piled in a car and <laughs> drove up in one day and came to our conference because they listened to the Liturgy Guys podcast. Mm. Uh, we had a couple people from San Diego. We have uh, we have a group of 12 uh, people, a priest and, and 12 of his parishioners coming this year um, because he was so excited last year about it. So um, if you if you want to experience some of this, come to some of our conferences. Come to, uh, you know, come to the liturgical, come visit us. You know, there's places to stay on campus and and all of that, but um, it's really a great opportunity to kind of see the balanced liturgy. Um, Father Don and I at lunch today were even talking about how um, you know millennials and young adults like myself can have can somehow develop this false sense of nostalgia towards the extraordinary form or to to the old rite. And one of the reasons I think this is true is because they haven't seen a Novus Ordo done in a proper way or to to the right degree. And so if they want to see something that they think is true and beautiful, they just default to the extraordinary form. 
And I think that's a failure uh, that that they're not seeing, you know, chanted dialogues back and forth. There were parts of the mass that that are chanted at the Liturgical Institute Daily Mass that I didn't even know there were chant parts to. And in music, which is such a huge part of my devotion to to the liturgy and to just it, it helps intensify everything that I do. It's elevated prayer. I didn't know that there were degrees of things that were supposed to be sung in the mass and that anything was that was a dialogue between the priest and the people was the first thing to be considered sung. I always thought, well, music directors, they're picking hymns and things like that, and that seems pretty important, or, or possibly the ordinary, uh, that seems pretty important, but no, it's the dialogues. And so when I'm learning this, I, I'm sitting back and I'm like, wow, I feel like... I feel like somebody stole something from me because that that wasn't ever conveyed to me and I've I've been missing out on that this whole time. So what's great is that at the Liturgical Institute we're trying to restore that um, through liturgical catechesis education and uh, what's great is we get to teach the people who teach. And so um, if if we're not going to be on the front lines running parishes, you know, and creating something like that, well at least we can train those pastors or train the people that are training the pastors so it's really a great opportunity to fight a a battle on two fronts with using our new media and podcasts and conferences to the people who won't get the degree but then issuing degrees to people who will be interacting with those parishioners so hopefully someday we'll meet in the middle and we will have attacked on both ends and we can have a balanced liturgy well great and uh, you mentioned podcasts, so uh, in the few minutes that remain, I'll give you a chance to uh, put a plug in for the Liturgy Guys podcast. Sure, sure. I don't want to steal listeners from the radio station. <laughs> uh, no, we don't do any. We don't do anything live as of yet. But uh, we actually just won a, an award, voted best Catholic podcast from Fisher's Net Awards. Um, I was joking with Father Don on the way over here. The fact that we get. Three or four thousand people a week listening to a liturgy podcast still blows my mind. I remember talking to Dr. McNamara after the first couple of episodes, and I'd run into his office and I'd say, "Dennis, fifty people listened to our podcast this week," and I was like so excited. And now, you know, I publish an episode and we hit fifty in like ten minutes. So, um, you know, it's a it is a great way to learn more about the liturgy in a very fun and engaging way. Uh, we all know liturgy, like I said, can be this very intense, polarizing subject where you uh, it's like one of the things you're not supposed to talk about at the at the Catholic dinner <laughs> table. You, we all know the other things you're not <laughs> supposed to talk about. But but if you're at a Catholic table, liturgy is one of the things you don't discuss. Well, we've removed those obstacles and we've, we've removed those barriers and we've made it a very fun experience and entertaining and engaging. So. Basically, Chris and Dennis—they're the smarties, and I'm the—I'm the dumb guy in the room trying to figure out what the heck they're talking about. You're the straight about. guy, yeah. huh? <laughs> right. So, so uh, I found out about it uh, on Facebook. But how would mm-hmm. people? Uh, how do people access uh, the the podcast? They can go to liturgyguys.com, and one of the the unique things that we do every episode is we answer people's liturgy questions. Um, we get a lot of. Should we hold hands during the Our Father? That type of stuff. But if you do have a liturgy question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com, and uh, we, we will answer one of those every week. And it's actually pretty amazing to see all the types of questions that we get. And some people really know what they're talking about, and some people are just kind of scratching the surface. So we like to serve all of them uh, because, like I said, not everyone's going to get a master's degree in liturgy. But 
they should at least know what's going on in the mass. Well, of course, because the Mass is the the most important act of worship and prayer that the Church has. It's the source and summit of all that we do. And the more we understand it and the more better able we are to participate in it, the richer our own relationship with the Lord and with one another will be. So I, I sometimes wonder, I, I get these questions occasionally from Dennis asking me about some point of we liturgical sent you one. Yes. We <laughs> sent you one. There was, a, there was the question about whether a bishop can or cannot say what type of form you can oh, yeah, say right, in the Mass. Yeah. And, and we have a number of other ones, so I'll be reaching out to you for sure. Thank you. Very good. Well, before we close, uh, let's ask for God's blessing. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your Lent and a very happy Easter, too. And Justice Scalia, who did not agree.